Today we're looking at Mark chapter 3, um, and, and uh, we're going to be talking about, um, starting at verse 7, but we're going to go back and look at, chap- at chapter 3, verse 6. Um, remember what happened last week. We talked about how Jesus has been asking, well, people have been asking Jesus questions. He's been acting. He's been acting like the Messiah, doing things like forgiving sins and demonstrating his authority over the Sabbath and doing all these different things. And so people have been asking questions, right? The religious leaders, namely, uh, such as the Pharisees and the scribes and the scribes of the Pharisees and these different groups that are in religious uh, positions of authority. Do they have the right to ask questions? Sure. Yes. As a matter of fact, not only do they have the right, they have the responsibility to ask these questions, right? Because any, you know, dingbat religious leader can show up and start preaching. We know that from modern times, right? Um, we have a lot of those that pop up. Well, <laughs> that pop up occasionally, right? People, people start preaching strange doctrines, strange things. And you would hope that if, let's say, someone came to Tulsa and they set up a tent, um, and they started, started camp meetings, and what they were preaching was not biblical, you would hope that the pastors, the religious leaders of the community, would begin to ask questions, right? Yeah. That they would come and, and ask about his authority. And this is exactly the responsibility of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, is to question the authority of Jesus. Jesus answers their questions. If they come with a legitimate question, then Jesus gives them a legitimate answer. And that answer is, is a means of revealing himself to them. So with every question, he reveals more of who he is. Now, this is an important principle because I really believe that this is the way that we learn about the Lord. We learn about the Lord when we have a question. And so wouldn't it stand to reason that God would put us into situations that would cause us to question? You see, we pray that our life always goes smoothly. But when our life goes smoothly, guess what? We don't ask questions. We don't ask questions of God because everything's working out the way we expect it to work out. And so our expectations are being met. We're prospering. We're happy. We're fat. We're, you know, all those things that we look forward to, right? Everything's going well in our life. And so we don't ask God any questions. There isn't any challenge, right, that we're confronting in our life. But when difficult things happen in our life, what do we do? We go to God and we say, why? God, what are you doing? What are you doing in my life? And God says, now you're asking questions. Now I can reveal more about who I am. Okay? And isn't that true? I mean, think back on your life. When have you learned the most about God? Has it been in the good times? No, it's in the midst of times of questioning and doubt and struggle and difficulty. That's when we learn the most about God. Okay? And what is God's goal? God's goal is not to make you happy. God's goal is to reveal himself to you because that's to your benefit. So doesn't it make sense that God would allow difficulty and struggle in our lives so that we will grow in our faith and our understanding of who he is? Because ultimately, that's the best thing for us. It's kind of a different way to look at things, isn't it? 
Um, but this is what we see going on. Jesus is doing things. He's provoking. He's poking the bear, right? And so he's doing things that are outside of the realm of normality for a rabbi. And by doing that, he's causing, he's provoking questions. And then he's answering those questions and revealing himself. By the time we get to the end of the series, there are five stories. And at the, on the fifth story, the questions stop. They set a trap for Jesus in the synagogue. A man with a withered hand is there, and they're waiting to see if Jesus will heal him on the Sabbath to accuse him. They've made up their mind. So Jesus asked them a question. Is it right to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? Because Jesus was going to work on the Sabbath. He was going to heal a man. They were working on the Sabbath. They were conspiring to kill a man. And Jesus says, which one, which work is best to do on the Sabbath? We're both working here, guys. We're both about to violate your understanding of how Sabbath should function. But I'm going to do good, and you're going to do evil. He's giving them a chance to repent. But the Bible says they were silent. The questioning has ended. And immediately, the scripture says, after Jesus heals the man, the Pharisees went out and took counsel with the Herodians. The Herodians. Who are the Herodians. Okay? And let's talk a little bit about who the Pharisees are and who the Herodians are. Let's begin with the Pharisees because they're more well-known. What can you tell me, my friends, about Pharisees? What do you know about Pharisees? They're very legalistic. You know, I know. Some people who don't know or have. I looked it up. Okay, what do you got? Uh, they focused on the minutest details of religious law. Okay. They were opposed to Jews accepting Greek culture and religion. Okay. And they saw for ordination uh, consistent with free will, believed the soul was immortal, also believed in the resurrection of the body, angels uh, and spirits. You got a hole in your definition. Uh, reward, reward and punishment uh, occur in a future life. Um, the wicked are in prison under the earth eternally, but the religious are reincarnated, which I thought was That's weird. interesting. Okay, so um, what, do we, what do we glean from, from that definition? These guys believe in the supernatural, okay? They believe in resurrection, angels, demons, those kinds of things. Um, they also believe in the law of God. They're radically dedicated to the keeping of the law. They're legalistic, okay? And not only do they believe in the keeping the law of God, but they have created additional laws that surround the law of God so that they will never break the law of God. Right. So I thought that was really interesting because it's not just legalism. They they started with good intent. Right. It's Absolutely. hard to break the law if you won't even let let them get near it. That's right. That's right. If it is illegal for me to touch that table, then I'm going to set this table up and that couch in front of that table so that I can't get to it. See? 
So if I, I can keep from breaking this law and, and I don't break that law, then there's no way I'll break the actual law of God. See, so they built this, these layers of laws around the law in order to protect themselves from breaking the law. And so they created this web of legalism and that, had, that was ridiculous, that was oppressive. And Jesus is going to talk about, uh, throughout we're going to see quite a bit about how Jesus talks about how this has worked against actually the law. It's with their, their oral law, they've turned the law upside down. But that's, that's chapter 7. Good question. That's a great question. So we have Pharisees. And a subset of Pharisees are rabbis. So um, rabbis are the teaching elders of the Pharisees. Okay? So they would be the leading Pharisees in a particular synagogue. They're the ones who teach the word. They're the ones who have uh, students that follow them and uh, things like that. So they're a broad group of Pharisees. They're a party of, of religious, kind of a, like, let's say, a religious group or religious sect. And then the rabbis would be the leaders of that sect. Interestingly, what titles does people call Jesus? Rabbi. 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 Jesus was a Pharisee. <laughs> Jesus was a Pharisee. He was known in his culture as a Pharisee. Because he was called a rabbi. And if you're called a rabbi, then you were seen as a Pharisee. So when Jesus attacks the Pharisees, he's attacking, really, his own group. He's, he, and he most believes the things that the Pharisees believe. He believes in supernatural, healing, miracles, um, demons, angels, the resurrection. Right? So he is akin to the Pharisees, but the Pharisees are off course. And Jesus is trying to correct them. That's why he's answering their questions. Okay? Because he's really one of them. He's part of the synagogue. Didn't he say to his, his disciples, let's go to other towns so that we can go to their synagogues and preach there also, for this is why I have come out. Why would he go to the synagogues? He's a rabbi. Yeah. It seems to me like the fundamental problem these folks had was that they were committed to the idea of earning their way into heaven through their good works or lack of bad works. Yes. Yes, they have become completely focused on work, a works salvation, a keeping of the law through your own merit. All right? So, now, one other thing we need to know about Pharisees. Pharisees, are, they're generally um, artisans. They are middle-class people um, who are bivocational. Most Pharisees had a job, just as Jesus was a carpenter, right? And he was also a religious teacher. The Apostle Paul was a what? Tent maker. A tent maker, okay? And he retained his ability to make tents and to do that kind of business even though he was a spiritual teacher, okay? And so they, were, they tended to be bivocational. They were out in the community. They were the heads of the synagogues, all right? They're part of the synagogue system, not the temple system. There are some Pharisees on the, on the, the Sanhedrin council, but they represent the masses. They are popular with the people. 
because they are the pastors of the people in the towns and in the villages throughout where the Jews live. You know, we tend to think of them as villains. They were the popular people, and they were nationalists. They believed in the freedom of Israel. Right, Peggy? Absolutely. They wanted independence. They were waiting for who? The Messiah. They were waiting for the Messiah to come, right? And to deliver them from the Romans. So the Pharisees hate the Romans, okay? They're nationalists. They believe in the independence of Israel. Now, let's talk about the Herodians. Who do you think the Herodians are for? Herod. Herod. Okay. What did you find out about them, Kevin? Uh, they, were, they were the Jews that had aligned themselves with Herod, and Herod was the, uh, the governor on behalf of Rome, so they were, they were the Vici. Okay. Right. Exactly. They're the sellouts. They would be more, more the upper class. Uh, we're going we're gonna to see later, we're going to get a glimpse into the Herodians uh, because Herod's going to throw a birthday party in chapter, chapter 6. And, um, and he's going to invite all of the leading people of Galilee, right? The military leaders, the leading people of Galilee. These are the wealthy, the, arist the, arist the aristocracy, right? The people who owned large amounts of land, who owned the trading businesses, they would be the people that would be aligned with the Romans. They're aligned with the house of Herod because Herod is the vassal ruler under the Roman Empire. So they are more like the tax collectors, right? And so they don't believe in the independence of Israel. They've sold out to the enemy. They're working the deal with the local oppressors right? The international oppressors. And so you can imagine how the Pharisees and the Herodians got along with one another. Okay? They're like the Democrats and the Republicans, but, you know, the radical wing of each side, right? Coming together um, in order to conspire against Jesus. Why would the Pharisees, why have the Pharisees decided that Jesus must die? Because he was a Conflicting with what they were saying and doing, and they, everybody starts following him, then they won't be following me, and that will definitely affect my business. And next thing you know, I'll be selling all my goods for a dollar on Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's going to end up at good deals. Um, yeah, it, you know, for them, it's I think it's less economic and more religious. Uh, when we get to the temple, it's more economic. But for these guys, this man can't be the Messiah. Why? Be it's not. Why? He's not a military conqueror. Yeah, he doesn't, and he doesn't align with us. I mean, we, we got the truth, right? Yeah. And so he should be like us. But at every turn, he seems to be, he seems to be speaking against what we hold dear, what we believe. He can't be the guy. And then you got the Herodians. Now, for the Herodians, it is economic, right? Because Jesus is drawing these large crowds, and there's murmurs that could this guy be the Messiah? Messiah means king. We got a, 
a grassroots movement for a local king, what's going to happen with the Romans? <laughs> they're going to come down on Herod because Herod couldn't keep control. And they're going to lose power because the Romans are going to come in and crush this. And they're going to fall out of favor because their maintenance of the peace is what keeps them in power with the Romans. Okay, so you see, they're different interests, but they end up with the same goal. And so they go out hand in hand to conspire together against Jesus. I have a political question. How does all this mix with the fact that <clears throat> Judea and Jerusalem in the south are not under a Herodian ruler? They booted him out and they've got a Roman ruler. Yeah, they're, they're under direct <laughs> Roman control. But and Herod Antipas for all practical purposes, it's just got Galilee, which is not looked upon with great favor by the people in Jerusalem. Well, it's not the cultural center, but it's economically well, they, much more valuable. Yeah. And so they're squeezing taxes out at every level from the poor Galileans. That's why all of the, all of the liberation movements were rising Galilee. Yeah. All messiahs start in Galilee. Galilee. Okay, so let's, now let's move on because we've got, we've got a lot of fish to fry here today. Um, we begin li quite literally. Jesus now withdrew from, with, with his disciples to the lake. And a large crowd from Galilee followed. And when they heard about all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, the regions across the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. Um, did you, uh, anybody look those places up on a map? Yeah. yeah. Okay, what did you find out? More than And they're Gentile areas. Um, would you bring me a napkin to watch the board? Um, what's that? They're Gentile areas. Gentile areas. It's an expanding Expand area. Expanding area. Is it on the bottom? Thank you. So, we've got, if we say, okay, okay, so you know this map, right? Yeah. Um, Jerusalem. Galilee up here, right? This is the Jewish area, okay? It starts in Galilee. These guys are coming up. That makes sense. He's a Jewish leader. But then what is the next place that's mentioned? Idumea. <clears throat> Beyond the Jordan. Idumea. Idumea is down here in the south. south. This is actually where Herod's from. He's Idumean. Edom. All right, and so it's down here in the south, and then we have regions beyond the Jordan. Jordan right. to the east. And then we have Tyre and Sidon up to the north. Up here in, um, in Lebanon, right? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting, it's from the center. Okay, yeah. what is he doing? He's 
Mark is pointing us to all points of the compass. Over here is the med, right? Yeah. So nobody's coming nobody's out of the med. Coming from the med <laughs> no sea <see>. monsters. <laughs> but people are coming from everywhere. They're coming, these are representative places, representing the, the cardinal points of the compass, in essence. Mm -hmm. And an expanding, you know, like we've got stones that are making ripples in the pond. We've got an expanding um, group of people that are coming to hear Jesus. And like you said, they're coming from places that we wouldn't expect, Gentile places. Right? So good. Now, let's move on. The people are crushing in. The crowds are, are coming from everywhere. People with diseases, they're pushing toward to, forward to touch him. Whenever impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. And Jesus says, Be quiet. And they be quiet. Okay? And so imagine the scene, right? Things are getting pretty raucous as Jesus is moving through these towns and villages and the crowds are building and building and people are trying to touch him and the disciples are standing around him like secret service agents trying to push him away and speaking into their you know wrist mics and wearing dark sunglasses and the whole thing is getting kind of crazy right and um and so at this point in verse 13 it says jesus um went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, that they may be with him, that they may send him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve that he appointed: Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boagernus, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. All right. So we've got the 12 here. Um, what do you notice about Jesus calling the 12? Got a variety of people, including a terrorist. Okay, we're going to talk about these, this variety. We've got such a crazy variety of people here. They went up on a mountain. They went up on a mountain. Why is that significant? That's where Moses went to get the law, and that's where the transformation occurred. Okay, let's talk about this for a moment, because we've got this reference back to the Old Testament. When you see the word 12, why did Jesus choose 12 disciples? 12 tribes. 12 tribes. Symbolic. Uh, Moses goes up on a mountain. He's got 12 tribes that are surrounding the base of the mountain. And he goes up on the mountain, cloud. He receives the law, and he starts starts Israel as a nation. This is where it, the nation of Israel is born. Up until this point, they are a, first a family, and then they're a, an enslaved people group. But it's not until Sinai that they become a nation. They receive their culture, they receive their law, they become organized, right? Mm -hmm. They get acquainted with their God. 
They have a purpose and they're on their march to take their land. They become a nation at Sinai. It's significant that Jesus has just been rejected by the leaders of Israel. They have rejected him as their king, their Messiah. They've stopped questioning, they've made up their mind, and they're plotting to kill him. What does Jesus do? Immediately, he goes on to a mountain, and he calls to himself 12. What's he saying? Start over. A lot of yeah. Starting a new thing. Starts a new deal. He's starting a new Israel. Some people get angry when I say this. Um, old Israel hasn't disappeared, okay? There's some old end time mm -hmm. stuff. God isn't done with Israel, Paul tells us later. But the fact that Jesus has started something that looks like what was started before, it's the same thing, only different, okay? So there is continuity with old Israel, but there's discontinuity. It's the same thing, but it's also very different. And we're going to see. Jesus said, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the good news of the gospel, saying the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. That was his message, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, right? Well, the kingdom of God is near. Now it's here. He's beginning the kingdom. And the kingdom is a new Israel. It's, it's, it's something new. Okay? Uh, so Jesus, instead of, after the, he's rejected by the religious establishment, he doesn't go back and say, oh, no, 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 really, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it, really, no. Um, let's figure out how to negotiate a peace here between us. Because everybody expected him to ascend to the top of the structure that existed, take up his throne in, in the temple, and throw out the Romans. That's what the Messiah was supposed to do. But when Jesus gets rejected, he goes up on a mountain and he starts over. So essentially, the Jews want an extension of the old covenant, and Jesus says, no, it can't be. We've got to have a new covenant. So this is his new covenant. Why? Because you can't put new, new wine, wine in, the old in old wineskins. Wine you can't sew a new patch on an old garment. It's all starting to tie together. There's a lot of unity in what Jesus is saying, okay? This is what's going on here, guys. It's a big deal. What Jesus does with these 12 guys, calling these 12 guys, is a big deal. It's a huge statement. Okay, got it? All right, now, let's talk about the 12. It's cool, isn't it? I never saw that. It's so cool. All right. Now... Let's talk about the 12. <coughs> Name them. In order. Peter, Andrew, James. Peter. James. In order, it's Peter, James. 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 John. John. Then Andrew. Andrew. Philip. Philip. Bartholomew. Bart. <laughs> Who else? Thomas. Another James. James. James A. Thaddeus. Thaddeus. A. E. U. S. Right. Mm -hmm. Thaddeus. 
Simon Z and Judas. All right, there we got them. There's the 12. This is the way that, what? There's Bart James right there. There's Bart James right there. And so um, here we have the 12. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the arrangement. If you study, there are four lists of the 12 in the Bible. One in Mark, one in Matthew, one in Luke, and one in Acts, okay? Um, and so we don't know a lot about the 12. If Watch The Chosen <coughs> on TV, enjoy that. There's a lot of interesting ideas there. Not all of it is in the Bible. They give us some background on these guys, but most of these guys we don't know anything about. In Mark, all we know about is Peter, James, John. I think Thomas might get an honorable mention. Judas, certainly, at the end. Um, Andrew gets mentioned. Matthew is mentioned, but not as Matthew. He's mentioned as Levi. And we only know that Matthew and Levi are the same guy because of the book of Matthew. It tells the same story as the book of Mark with a different name. So we know that Matthew is his Greek name. Levi is his Hebrew name. Some of these guys change their names. Thaddeus is actually, his name is Judas, son of Alphaeus. If you were one of the 12 and your name was Judas, wouldn't you change your name by the end? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So Thaddeus is his Greek name. He goes by his Greek name. These guys are using their Greek names because when the Bible is written, when Mark writes his story... He includes the list and he includes their Greek names because these guys are now traveling evangelists going over telling the story about Jesus and so he's authenticating who these guys are so when they show up at your church, oh, you're on the list. Come tell us the story. You've got the authenticated version. Okay, does it make sense? So that's why their names are listed. That's a, this list is very important. Now, interestingly, the list tends to follow the same pattern. And so, since we know the most about the first three, we know that these three guys are what we call, what? The inner circle. The inner circle. In, in, the, book of, in the book of Mark, uh, Peter, James, and John get access to Jesus, certain miracles that Jesus does. In chapter 5, they will see the raising of Jairus' daughter. No one else will. Uh, they are the ones on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, they are the ones with Jesus in the garden uh, before his crucifixion. Okay? And so they get access. So clearly they are. Um, and so what we think is that these guys are in groups. And these are probably ministry teams that Jesus sets up. Okay? Um, we know he sends them out two by two, but I think later they kind of coalesce into these groups of three. Um, we know Andrew and Philip are together in the book of John. They show up always together. Um, uh, it would make sense that Matthew and Thomas are together, the tax collector and the doubter. They just kind of seem to go together. Judas is always at the end of the list because he will be the betrayer. Judas, and there is another Judas, Thaddeus is Judas, son of Alphaeus. Um, Judas um, is known as Judas Iscariot, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Well, what does that name mean? Well, the Ish, 
Ish means man in Hebrew. And Kerioth is a little town in Judea. And so most probably he was Judas, the man from Kerioth. Judas Iscariot. And so that's, once that is Greekified, it becomes Iscariot and it becomes his last name. But it was really where he was from. And why? Because there was another Judas in the group. And so you had to know which one was which. Mm -hmm. It's like when you're in kindergarten, you got Paul M and Paul, Paul F, right? You, you kind of have to distinguish between the two. And so you use the first letter of their last name. That's what's happening here. Okay, so that makes sense. So this is our list of authentic, authenticated um, uh, spokesmen who are going to tell the story of Jesus. They are going to be the witnesses. Um, and there are 12. And that 12 is important because it represents the 12 tribes. And we're going to see in the Gospels, uh, later Jesus is going to say in another Gospel, he's going to equate the 12 tribes, and the 12 apostles together. And we see in the book of Revelation that they're drawn together in parallel symbolic mention, right? In the construction of the New Jerusalem. And so we know that these things, that this was the intent of the authors to draw this con connection between the two. All right, we got to keep going. We've got five minutes and we still haven't gotten to this stuff that's really important. So Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered so that his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's crazy. He's, crazy. He's out of his mind. Why did his family think that he was crazy? Was it because he was just too busy to eat? No. Mary knew he was the Messiah from the time of his birth, right? Before his birth, from the time of his conception. She expected him to be busy. Why would she think he's crazy? Because he just did this. Mary thought, the brothers thought, everybody thought, Jesus should be doing it the way we think the Messiah should, he's got to ascend to the top of the structure, sit down in Jerusalem and take control. But now he's gone out and started something new. What are you thinking, Jesus? You're crazy. Have you lost it? That's what would cause his family to think that he's crazy. Most of the time he was out in the boondocks somewhere talking to people instead of being in Jerusalem where the action was. That's right. Even John's going to question that, right? You should be in Jerusalem. What are you doing, John the Baptist? Okay, so um, he's out of his mind. Then teachers of the law come down from Jerusalem, and they say he is possessed by Beelzebul. Beelzebul, what does this word mean? Did anybody look it up? The devil. The devil. What does it mean? Anybody know? Anybody look it up? Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. Oh, the, the God of Dung. Uh, this was a, um, there, was, there was a Gentile God, a Canaanite God that went by Beelzebul. The original idea was probably the God of the house or the God of the temple. 
right? Because they probably built a temple for him, and this was the god of the temple, wherever that temple was. That's where the original etymology of the word means. But the, the Jews, in their good sense of humor, twisted it to mean the god of dung, okay? The poop god, right? The god of refuse, the god of things that are unclean, the unclean god. Okay, and so it becomes, it morphs into another name for Satan. So it comes in that direction. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus then makes his his case here against their argument, he says, how can a man go into a strong man's house unless he binds the strong man? You called me the God of the house, right? Mm -hmm. Then I need to go in and bind the, the owner of the house. Right? So this house stuff is there, and so it's probably on Jesus' mind. He's very skillful in his argument. Um, and Jesus says, how can a kingdom be divided against itself? If I am deriving my power from Satan, then why would I be casting out devils? That makes no sense. I mean, what are you guys in kindergarten? What kind of argument is that? Right? And it's interesting because what's happening in Israel? There is a division that is happening. Those who believe in Jesus and those who are against him. Right? And a house divided against itself cannot stand. So Jesus is speaking on two levels. Right? He's speaking about what their accusation of him being empowered by Satan and casting out demons at the same time. But he's also speaking about what's happening in their own religion, the house is divided, and as a result, it's going to fall. The old wineskins will be lost, right? They will burst because they can't contain the new. Okay, so all this kind of ties together. Um, I think what is very significant here, if we read between the lines, um, from an, um, an apologetic perspective, is that these guys come down from Jerusalem and they say, Jesus' miracles are all a fake. Jesus really didn't cast out demons. He didn't really heal anybody. He, he planted people in the audience, and that's how it happened, right? They, no. They never denied that the miracles happened. They came down and said, his power comes from somewhere else. So modern critics of the Bible deny the existence of the miracles that they actually ever happened. But these people who were vehemently Jesus' enemies come to Galilee and they never deny the veracity of the miracles because there was no way they could. Everybody knew they were, happened. Yeah, they had witnesses. Everybody knew they were true. And so the only thing they could do was, was try to make up a story that his power came from a dark place from the dark side rather than from the light side that it came from Satan rather than God but they never denied that they actually were real miracles important point when we talk about the truth of miracles when people say miracles didn't really I mean, Jesus really was a miracle worker he just loved people when he loved people everybody was happy and so they didn't think about we were sick anymore no no that's not what happened it's not what happened there were real miracles they wouldn't mob him if he wasn't really healing people. It's really healing people. <clears throat> okay, so we look at this. Some of this evidence is important for us as we think about dealing with modern critics of the Bible. 
Okay, he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. Verse 29, they're guilty of an eternal sin. This is the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin. So what is the unpardonable sin? Contributing the work of God to Satan. Exactly. Contributing the work of God to Satan. All right? Um, if you're afraid you've committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't. Okay? You haven't committed it. Because the unpardonable sin is unrepentant. You, it's people that are so hardened against God that they will not repent for, the, for their attributing the work of God to Satan or to someone else, right? You see, Jesus had revealed himself to them. They knew the truth. They knew enough to know the truth that Jesus was the Messiah. And they were denying the truth. The unpardonable sin is to deny the truth of the identity of Jesus. And those who go to Satan, the only ones who go to hell are those who deny the truth. They know the truth, but they deny it. And so that's unpardonable. Right? Anything else is pardonable. But if you go to the grave denying the truth that you know, then you lost it. Make sense? Okay, that's the unpardonable sin. All right, now, I hate to rush through all this because there's just so much here, but we've got to keep rolling because we're already out of time by four minutes. So, Jesus, mother and brothers arrived, verse 31, standing outside. I want you to notice the word outside. They sent someone in to call him. As a crowd was sitting around, they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus said, don't you know it? They're outside. They think I'm crazy. Okay? There's this inside-outside imagery. There are those who are outside, and there are those who are inside. Those who are inside are believing. Those who are outside don't believe. The Pharisees went out with the Herodians, and they conspired to kill Jesus. They went out. His family is outside. And Jesus... Uh, so they're physically outside, but they're also spiritually outside at this point. Okay? Because Jesus says, who are my, bro my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked around at the circle of the people around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will, the God, God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This seems very rude, doesn't it? Yes. Mary shows up. I mean, it would be very countercultural for Jesus to reject his mother in this public way and his brothers. So when you see something like this, that you go, that doesn't fit with Jesus. What? We normally just read by it and go, oh, well, that's weird. But you have to stop and ask the question. Weirdness. Why is there weirdness here? What is going on? Why would Jesus violate something that even I know would be culturally unacceptable? Why would he insult his mother publicly like this? It must be something important. He's teaching something important through it. And what has he just done? You, you can have the DNA of Abraham and not be part of the, the kingdom. 
How is the old Israel defined? How, what is the entry requirement for old Israel? We are descended blood, from right? It's your blood relatives. Jesus redefines it for new Israel. He says those who do the will of God, those who are inside, not the ones who are outside, but those who are inside are my mother and my brother and my sisters. In other words, he's redefined how the kingdom will be composed. It's no longer composed of people related by blood. It's composed by people who follow the will of God. So he's, redefin he's defining the kingdom for us. It's powerful, isn't it? Okay, so Jesus is laying out what the new wineskin looks like. This new wineskin, hallelujah, is open to all of us, right? It's open to all of us. All right, we got to stop there because we're out of time. Um, but we've got up to the end of chapter 3. Chapter 4, take this home. We're going to be off next week, but the following week we're going to come back. And chapter 4 is now the message of the king. And it's incredible. Uh, we're going to look at these. We're going to look at these parables, and I want you to think about what is the secret of the kingdom. What is the secret of the kingdom?